I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to a new series of Pubs, Pints, People, the camera podcast. I'm Claire Phillips. With me today are my fellow hosts, Alison Tafts and Simon Webster. Hello, both of you. Hello, Claire. Hello, Simon. Long time no speak. Indeed. (laughs) Hello, Alison. Hello, Claire. In a packed episode to kick off this new season, we're looking specifically at Mild and have something of a Midlands focus as I chat to Professor Carl Chin, who's long been connected to Birmingham University, was made an MBE for his services to local history and has some fascinating facts about the history of Mild in that part of the world. What a great subject to be starting a new series with. And I'll be hearing more about one of my absolute favourite beer styles, Mild 2, as I go on a mild odyssey in the black country, including meeting the sisters who are now running the Bathams Brewery, visiting good beer guy pubs searching for a taste of the black or ruby malty stuff, and going behind the scenes at the Sarah Hughes Brewery and the Beacon Hotel in Sedgley near Dudley. It's funny you should mention them because I was looking for Sarah Hughes Dark Ruby Mild to add to my shortlist when I was voting in the Champion Beer of Britain recently. And I got somewhat confused because I initially looked in the milds category, couldn't find it there, and then found it in brown ales, red ales, old ales and strong milds, that natty little section. Well, luckily, (laughs) I've been talking to the head judge of CBOB, as it's known, competition. We'll be hearing from her later on in the show. And I was able to ask about who decides how the different beers end up in which categories and more about the judging process. And of course, that's something that's been widely discussed since this year's winners were announced. It certainly was. I remember when we were recording on the day at GBBF, there was a, a, you know, a lot of discussion from everyone around the venue. So looking forward to hearing what Christine has to say a little bit later. Mild, like all beer styles, has evolved and continues to evolve over time. It's hard to know precisely what mild has tasted like as the years have passed. But the term mild first appears as an indication of freshness. A mild-tasting running beer, served fresh from the brewery, and to differentiate it from the more intensely flavoured ales of that time that were matured in wooden barrels. In the late 1700s, brewers spoke of beer that was mild, fresh, or stale, aged. Here's a section from Martin Cornell's Amber, Gold and Black. Originally, the main, indeed the only standard for a beer called mild, was that it should be fresh not more than a couple of weeks old, and have the taste and aroma that come with freshness. Any older, past the point at which the beer starts exhibiting the flavours that come with maturity, and it isn't mild anymore. At least, not what brewers would have recognised as mild back in the 19th and early 20th centuries. To quote one commentator from 1869, 
New ale and porter, which are free from acid, are named mild. That was it. For Victorian brewers, and those who came before them, any beer, strong or weak, hoppy or not, light or dark, could be called mild, if it was young enough. So, in history, a pint of mild could be any colour or style. But they were generally more lightly hopped, as they were drunk so quickly they didn't require the preservative quality of expensive hops. That's, I think, how the softer, malt-forward style began to evolve. And over time, mild became the pint of choice for the thirsty worker at the end of the shift, at the end of the day, and it dominated sales in the public bar. In the 1890s, it formed the bulk of production for many brewers. And mild was the biggest selling style right up to the late 1950s when it was overtaken by bitter. Uh, Now, I fell a bit in love with the mild style quite a few years ago, and I think it was my love of old ale that led me there originally. I've been enjoying the modern styles of mild from newer breweries, and this led me to, of course, the legendary Sarah Hughes Ruby Mild, and a deep curiosity to try some more milds. Names like Holden's, and particularly Batham's. I'd never tried them, and I knew we needed to make the pilgrimage to the black country to try them and find out more. Now, luckily, our editor, David, is a man of the Midlands and lives in a village close to Wolverhampton. So I invited myself to stay and David took me on a tour to discover mild in the wild. So first we visited Batham's. It's founded in the late 1880s and we were invited to their beautiful period ballroom above the brewery in Briarley Hill. There were slightly forbidding portraits of the ancestors and the founders all round the walls. The sixth generation of Bathams is in charge in 2023 and they are anything but forbidding. Claire is just in the process of taking over the running of the pub estate from Uncle Matt and Alice, who has taken over from their father, running the production as head brewer. David and I started chatting to Claire and Alice and found them incredibly easy to speak with. The energy and enthusiasm was was amazing. Our main challenge was getting the tape recorder running in time to capture the conversation. By the way, during this chat, Claire refers to kills. Now, these are kill-looking barrels. They're 18-gallon barrels holding 144 pints. And she also mentions hogsheads. They're 54 gallons. That's a whopping 432 pints. If you bear in mind the most common cask sizing use is the firkin, that's a 9-gallon 72 pints. This gives you an, an idea just how much of their cask beer their pubs are using. We start the interview first by asking how important brewing cask ale is to their business and Claire comes in with the answer. Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, the cask is sort of 85, 90% of our sales. The pub next door still has hogsheads of bitter, so it's, we're just, yeah. Gallons and gallons of it, basically. (laughs) They're doing about five to six hogsheads a week. Apart from the tenants here, they're all wet-led pubs, so there's no sort of sit down food or anything they're proper community boozers really mm-hmm. yeah. and I, I read that your sort of biggest selling beer is your bitter yeah by a massive percentage <laughs> I've just been, I've just been looking at some figure work for you to sort of show you so between the like percentage sales between the bitter and the mild we're like 97 in 2019 it was 97% bitter but 2023 so far it's 95 percent bitter so that we're actually we've started to sell more mild in the last few years it was only ever in firkins wasn't it and you've been able to sell it in kills now because we're selling a lot more of it which is good these styles we have to try and hang on to we're starting to see sort of craft brewers you know they call them craft brewers more, more sort of modern style brewers coming through and getting really falling in love with the style and starting to see more people playing with them um so yeah it's great 
I really think the sort of ABV helps with that. So especially sort of the younger generations and the craft movement are really interested in. And this is what I'm hearing all over sort of Twitter and like the BBPA stuff. Mm -hmm. No and low alcohol is just on the up. And I think the style just really helps. But I think there are increasingly drinkers coming through on the younger side who are just willing to try everything and yeah. excited mm-hmm. to try everything. So if you put a mild in front of them, they don't have any any preconceptions. And, and so mm-hmm. if it's gentle and malty and fruity and delicious mm-hmm. and as a bonus is, is, is you know, low in alcohol, yeah. that's, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, so it's very exciting. Yeah. So thinking about that, you're brewing a lot of bitter. You're also now brewing more mild. What's the big difference, just from a sort of more technical point of view, about brewing bitter versus mild? Yeah, so actually the way that we brew the mild is a part guile. So we take some work off of a brew of bitter that we're going to make. And then it's treated differently. We do different hops and a little bit of um, colour treatment. And then it's fermented in a separate tank. It's the same yeast. It's all, all mm. everything's the same. Um, and that's about it, really. Yeah, it's a similar fermentation. And then we rack it, like Claire said, we rack it straight into firkins and kills. And it's also, we prime it a little bit in the cask just to get that extra condition in the pub mm. cellar so that it gets the yeast going again. So we're looking at that that um, hop being crucial to the flavour then from what you're saying. Um, so the malt bill is actually the same. Yeah, the malt bill is the same. It's actually the sort of additions that we make a little bit further downstream. But it's interesting, the hops you're using then. So what what is the difference between the bitter hopping regime and the hopping that you're doing with the mild? So with the mild, it's just a little bit gentler. So the hops that we use, they're the same in both of them. They're just dosing rates are a little bit different. So they're both um, Fuggles and Goldings which we get from Farums, who are a uh, long-standing supplier. Yes. Yeah. So you've got those <laughs> classic English hops, yeah. but you're using them in different quantities yeah. to give you a different, a different character yeah. and make that much softer kind of yeah. flavour profile. Yeah. Okay. So when you think about, you know, you've got your brewing day lay, laid out in front of you, for you, what, what makes this still an exciting thing that makes you want to sort of go forward into the next decades doing it? I think just all of the history that's behind it, I really feel like so proud to be here and so proud to make the beer that our ancestors have made. I feel really lucky that I enjoy the process, so I've worked in other breweries and I've enjoyed that there. But there's just something about coming in and I think the fact that we make bitter and mild and that's the only two that we make all, all year round, there's something I find quite addictive about sort of trying to better it each time. So you really have to focus in on making it super consistent. And obviously it being a natural product, you know, our malt changes depending on the weather or depending on the climate change that we're having at the moment. And it's a real sort of balancing act to get it absolutely consistent. And I really just enjoy that. I really enjoy like um, tweaking with it and working with the team to get the best out of the ingredients basically. So Claire, very much a family concern. Yes. How many people have you got working within the brewery here for, for the production and, and so on? You've got five guys in your team, mm-hmm. haven't you? And then there's obviously you and me and we've got a um, couple of ladies in the offices. So what's that, about 11 of us, yeah? Because there's 11 yeah. of you working here on the brewery site and then obviously you've got your pubs, pubs out there. With yeah, your... which then has, oh gosh, uh, there's 
about 113 of us, something like that, 115, I think I'm doing payroll at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to think how many people I'm putting through. Yep, so, um, yeah, 11 managers and then all of our bar staff. And sort of, so from my side of things, really, it's our customers and having those three years working at Plough and Harrow and just seeing how passionate they are about Bathams. We're passionate about it because it's our family and they're passionate about it because it's, I mean, it's almost an extended family. Yes. They they love it and we love it and, you know, they... They'll come in and they'll say that we've they've been to this pub today and that pub today and you know they'll give us feedback and it's just the joy that they bring into the pub. When you're not drinking delicious bathing bitter or mild, what do you choose to drink, Claire? What's your drink of choice outside of your own? Room? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I I'm really traditional and I'll just always generally go for the golden ales you like trying a lot of different casks cask yeah you're really good at that i think trying like different ipas and stuff yeah but i think i would i stay away from those really i i much prefer sort of having like pilsners and lagers when i'm not drinking bathams when i was at thornbridge we used to go out with the brewing team and it was always kind of a thing that everyone, all of the brewers would drink lucas which is their yes. lager yeah. and i think it, maybe it's just from sweating all day in the brewery you just need a little a little like more refreshing drink well in the winter i really like porters and that type of thing yeah so what what do you think uh, what what next for bathams what what are you thinking about in terms of you know the coming future we do get asked this question quite a bit actually and for us personally we're a lot more just trying to keep things as they are, you know, keep things running as successfully as they have been. And that's sort of the near future, that for Alice and I coming through um, as the next generation, that's where we're at the moment, is kind of been able to, like Alice has said previously, like keeping that constant and keeping the beer good and customers happy. Um, so short term, that's, yeah, that, that's the plan really. Yeah. Good. And do you see enough young folks coming in that you feel confident that you're going to keep that positive trajectory? Well, Alice turned, <laughs> Alice turned 30 on the weekend. And as is Batham tradition, we did a beer bus. So I did it for mine and my, our older sister did it for hers. Um, and so we went round six of the pubs on the weekend and yeah, pint, pint in each. And there was another 30th, birthday beer bus going around doing the same thing so I don't know when you say young generation is is 30 yeah. young <laughs> yeah I mean we, we're seeing younger people come in I think the fact that we've been able to keep the prices so fair as well um obviously the milds 260 the bitter is 350 people appreciate that and you know it, it's a it's a high quality product that we're being able to sell at a fair price and it works you know it, wow. it, it works so yeah I think the younger generation I like Alice was saying I have great memories of when I was running the pub and you would have like the older generations coming in and they'd bring their sons and daughters in and they'd buy me a pint and I'd say, hey, you've got to try a pint of bitter as well. And then, no, I want a vodka and lemonade. Like, <laughs> no, you have a bitter first. Like, half a bitter first and then. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But there, yeah, there's definitely like, there's definitely, well, we kind of grew up in pubs, didn't we? You know, like we as younger kids and I think there is that generation as well you know and they understand they they understand pubs and they understand 
how to be respectful in pubs and and we welcome children you know and and we hope that they'll have such good memories the way that we did when we were younger and you know and and going forward they'll come up and carry on drinking the bathams and so for, for someone like me that's obviously been really curious to try your beers but based in that there london Where's the cloak? Where, where did, how far do you sort of get out? How do you, where, where do the Batham's tentacles reach to? Where can I get hold of a pint of your bitter or, or mild? Or so how we do I sort of tend to go out towards, I don't know if you know, like Bridge North, Malvern Way. There's okay. There's a few pubs yeah. out there. Just <laughs> further, than, further away from yeah. you. I'm trying to think where we can. I know, I know, I know. Sort of our main thing is keeping our cask local and keeping it fresh. When I did my um, dissertation at uni, I did a project on cask here. And um, I think the beer, in, in our pubs, it, the beer only travels within like an eight mile radius of the brewery. And I think maybe that's sort of, it's quite unique now. I think cask beer travels very far and it's not, it's not the best idea for it, especially if you haven't got sort of a cold chain system in place. We have to maintain the reputation and like we need to do that and, and keep an eye on the quality and, and make sure it's like absolutely top top spec all the time yeah mm-hmm. which is why you won't find it in London <laughs> <laughs> and if you do I'd be worried <laughs> yeah. but the black country is great be. everyone should visit the black country because be um it's brilliant <laughs> up here so you know that that's what we promote and the local area is brilliant we were obviously born and raised here we love it Well, Claire and Alice sound amazing. It was really interesting to hear about their thoughts on the changing tastes of younger pub goers too. But when one of them said, is 30 young? I have to say, I'd say, uh, yes, definitely, 30 is young. And, and the other thing that struck me was their thoughts on not travelling their beer very far. That, that's really interesting that they say to preserve the quality. I, I think we've probably all heard at some point, and perhaps maybe not recently, but in years gone by, oh, such and such beer doesn't travel but not necessarily from the brewery themselves. I was thinking something similar myself as well. It's interesting that so much of what they brew is drunk within such a short distance from the brewery. You know, they've clearly got some huge fans of the beers they brew in their, in their local area. And you've mentioned, Alison, that you were in the company of um, our editor-in-chief, David, while you were there. You also went to a number of pubs, I think, to sample the mild. So how did you both get on? Uh, well, we had a great time in uh, in the end, uh, but it did prove a little harder than I thought to track down Mild. But David and I stuck to our guns with our trusty Good Beer Guide app in our hands, and we eventually found some very delicious pints. So we're here in the Vine Inn, otherwise known as what? What's its other name? The Bull and Bladder. The Bull and Bladder is what it's known as like locally. Yes. I think it causes some confusion from what... Um, from what we gather, that oh. people are confused. When we, came, when we came in, there was a bloke saying, what, what does Google call this place? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the Vine Inn is its technical Ooh. name and the one that's written above the door and the very beautiful, elaborate frontage with lots of um, interesting things uh, on there. And in front of David and I, we have the almost legendary Botham's Mild, don't we, David? Yeah, and a very fine glass, well, it is too. Mm. So the colour 
is much lighter than one might expect from a mild. So, I mean, I would call that chestnut. Certainly not the kind of jet black that you'd expect no. on a black country mild. No, definitely not. And that is that is definitely. I mean, we uh, holding it up against the light, I can see right through it for sure. And it is a honestly it looks a little bit more perhaps like than you might expect. It's slightly dark bitter to look, mm-hmm. but it has the requisite creamy, oh. sparkled head yeah. on top. Yeah. Lots of f- floof, as I always like to call it. Sorry about that. <laughs> creamy fluff on top. It's an attractive looking drink, I, I must say. It looks very, very nice. And then on the nose, it's beautifully delicate on the nose. I'm getting a sort of lovely, I mean, it's a fruity yeast aroma, I think. I mean, the word that just struck me when we had our first glass of mine. <laughs> <laughs> It just, I just thought fresh. It just smelled fresh yeah. somehow. Incredibly so, freshly brewed. Yeah, in, and the way, in the way that you know, when bread's just been baked, mm. so you've got that great smell of yeah. freshness. And it's just the same. Yeah, yeah I think on, on my tasting note, I described it as toasted tea cake. I don't mm-hmm. know whether you can you get that slight mm-hmm. touch of sultana in there as well, but definitely a bready kind of yeast. It's very yeast-driven, this beer. But on the nose, yeah, it's very inviting and very attractive. Mm. The thing that hits me first of all is this is beer that's all about mouthfeel. Mm. It's creamy, it's so smooth. There's nothing about this that's kind of bitter or jagged. There are no jagged edges, it's just pure, smooth, and creamy. And that lovely, kind of doughy, again with the dark fruits. I don't know if it's sort of. Is it but plum, kind of a very gentle plum kind of Yeah, bit. but it's so, it's so gentle, isn't it? I mean, plum, hint of malt loaf. It's so delicate. Mm, it really is. Yeah, no, it's lovely and, and soft. And you just want to go back for another, so I'm going in for another slurp. Why not? Mm. So, yeah, incredibly drinkable. Very low bitterness, doesn't really have, it's got a tiny hint of bitterness on the finish just at the back of the the palate, but really is a a soft, gentle, amazingly drinkable. Mild by name, mild by nature. (laughs) But wow, that's so good. Very, very delicious. delicious. So drinking Batham's Mild in just next to the brewery, in the brewery tap. And what a privilege to have met the brewer. Yeah, superb, agreed. So we're here in the Great Western pub, almost in the centre of Wolverhampton, close to the railway station. And you can tell we have a very strong railway theme in this particular pub. There's lots of beautiful heritage signs. There's even a, a heritage signal just sitting over David's head here. I should point out that's not a sound effect, that's actually a train going in the, over the bridge nearby. Yeah. <laughs> so in front of us, we've got two cheeky halves of the Holden's Mild. It has to be done. It does. Colour-wise, it is a very sunny day and the sun's shining through the window, but it's a mm. very light mild, isn't it? Yeah. Describe that as chestnut? Yes, I think that's, that's a good description. Interesting, I mean, the Banks' is Mild, as we'll see later on, is much paler than this. Highgate Mild, which I lament the passing of, <laughs> was, was a proper black... Proper dark mild. mild. So the Highgate Mild was brewed by Mitchells and Butlers back yeah, in the day in, when in they Warsaw. brewed yeah. in Warsaw. Yeah. It has got that classic sort of fruity, dried fruit. Um, Dare I say, a slight hint of dandelion and burdock. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a great tasting. But it's got that, it has a whiff of dandelion and burdock. 
love the texture it's very smooth mm. and it's got that very gentle malty almost no bitterness really to speak of maybe just a tiny hint of a lift of bitterness right at the very end it's got a decent length actually for the ABV what was it 3.7 I think yeah 3.7 I was once told by a landlord in a Desi pub that this is this is probably the best kind of beer to have with a curry with a curry absolutely right yeah because it's got that lovely smooth kind of gentle quenching your your fire if you've got some chilies going on yeah definitely so yeah I'm enjoying that it's good, nice good, good and it's in a terrific um, it's pure black country guys. Holden's pure black country and there's and there, there's their little chap on their label who's wearing a bowler I'm pleased to see as a Londoner that you didn't fall over when the price popped up at less than four pound for two halves. <laughs> I just smiled in a in an, 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 a rare smile when paying the bill for a beer in in a pub. I know it's fantastically good value, of course. It's, um, but yeah, really enjoyable. Cheers, David. Cheers. Cheers. Good health. So we've come to the source again, and we are at the Old Swan. Uh, pub where which is the base of the old swan brewery and we have in front of us the old swan black widow otherwise known as mar pardos do you know why it's called mar pardos david i don't i don't know if that goes back to one of the sort of early landladies sounds likely doesn't mm. it but it is it's that sort of dark chestnut color yeah, again yeah. and we've got a very thin head actually today for this one perhaps not as, as, as sparkly as previous heads we've had but maybe a slightly less tight spark than this one's been through but it does have that characteristic dark fruit and malt aroma. Mm. And we should say this is a brew pub. Yeah, they're brewing their own beer here. So we are at the source. So it's definitely got a lot more of the dark, um, mm. sort of licorice-like characters. Almost roasty, perhaps, character on the palate. It's definitely a, um, a, on the mild spectrum, though, in terms of what it's offering up. But I would say that would remind me more of a, an old ale than a mild. It's got the alcohol, it's over six percent. So yeah, definitely on the sort of much more on the old ale spectrum. But but yeah, very. It lingers. It does linger on the palate, definitely, with that sort of slightly roasty, slightly licoricey, and and perhaps less of, of the dark fruit and less of the, the the sort of malt malt loaf character, but a bit more of that kind of. Um, it's starting to go towards a bit more towards a stout. So yeah. But for anybody who finds stout too hefty, then this is a yeah, it's the sort of light nice light version of a stout. Yeah, stout it does have a nice creamy mouthfeel for sure. So yeah, that's the mm. um, Black Widow from the Old Swan, otherwise known as Old Marpardo in Netherton. Yes. So we are in the Swan. Where are we in the world, David? We're in Compton, which is on the outskirts of Wolverhampton. If you're heading out from the city towards Bridge North. And we've come in search of... Banksy's Mild. So we have one in front of us, colour-wise. Mm. It's um, a mix of bitter and mild. It's not necessarily full of true mild, but very popular, very tasty. Mm, but it looks, if you ask me what that was, I would say that's a, a pint of bitter with a slightly tan-coloured head. Not too big a head, it's sort of medium, medium reasonable, I would say. And on the nose... Oh, it's got that distinctive fruity, mm. yeah, mm. that plummy, fruity character that I would expect with a mild. Mm. It's very light, mm. really light, light on its feet, gentle. And again, really soft on the palate. Almost no bitterness whatsoever. It's just very, very low bitterness, but just that sort of slight hit of 
dark fruit on the front of the palate and then it sort of dies away very quickly. So it's it's a very short finish on that, I think. I'm sort of getting the malt mm. in there as well. Yeah, it's so light and easy drinking. Very much so, yeah. And it's, it's as I say, it's it's gone it's gone in a heartbeat, that one. So I can see why you'd want to drink a, a pint of that very quickly if you were very yeah, thirsty. Yeah, I think it's a good beer. I mean, I know, you know Banks is as big. It's, uh, took over Marston's, now taking over Margaret to the brewing side with Carlsberg, but there's nothing wrong with that. No. Well, it's not particularly uh, busy in here this afternoon, but as we look around, we can see people around us, and nobody's drinking this, are they? No. Nope. Sunbeam came out a few years ago, probably longer now than I remember, uh, which is their kind of light, citra-based beer, very successful, very tasty beer. Maybe it's the weather, I don't know, there's a dark one over there, but that's not this. No, that's definitely not, it's porter or stout of some sort. As you say, extremely drinkable, light, mild. I don't understand always this sort of dark beer in the the winter thing, because to me that's a perfect summer beer. Yeah, no, I agree with you, but um, it's very it's very common that people wouldn't want to drink a darker beer in the winter. But you know that that is light on its feet. Mm. Banks is mild. So we've got in front of us here, in our glasses, the unmistakable ruby red colour of this wonderful Sarah Hughes ruby mild. And it is, there is a red to it. Is oh my goodness, yeah. That's what we look from the side of the glass, it's so predominantly dark, I'd never really noticed. But if you look at the bottom of yeah. my glass there, can you see how yeah. red that is? And I mean, mine. it's really is quite ruby. It's like a little layer of ribena at the bottom <laughs> of the <glass>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to resemble ribena in any other way. Oh, it's really aromatic, this beer. I mean, that is dark fruits. And I think I've said this before, but it's like a malt loaf. It's like a slice <laughs> of malt loaf with a big slab of butter on top. Mm. That's beautiful, that aroma. Glorious. There's so much going on. Plums, dried mm. plums, and maybe a tiny bit hint of prunes. And then that big old slab of malt loaf. Mm. Great taste, isn't it? Great taste. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a it's big, rich, full, silky on the palate. The texture's terrific. As you swallow, you get that lovely waft of that big plummy sort of dried fruit kind of back to my malt loaf again. <laughs> also we've got the mouth feel, which is kind of well on the way to sort of Christmas beers and old ales, isn't that? Mm. Kind of, there's so much flavour in there. I'm almost feeling like it's a Christmassy yeah. treat. There's so much going on. It's, it's great. The, it's that plum, plum pudding-y kind mm, of it's, it's character. Yeah, there might even be a hint of spice there as well. This is a very clever beer. Mm. I think we've gone quiet now because we're just <laughs> slurping it. <laughs> Sadly, I forgot to prioritise and the beer comes before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I assume when you were going round all those different pubs, you, you only recorded the ones that uh, that actually had mild. So we won't ask how many other pubs you may or may not have gone into. <laughs> and what, was it only mild you were tasting? <laughs> no, no, there were a few more, but uh, we obviously had to try the Batham's Bitter as well, and it was absolutely delicious. Very soft and gentle, distinctly Moorish, and sparkled, of course, what I like to call a floofy pint. Ah, the contentious sparkler in the Midlands as well. Well, that could be a topic for a future podcast, perhaps. Oh, definitely. Let's plan it. I bet we can get a multitude of opinions on that one. 
Now, moving on from Alison and David's adventures around the West Midlands, we're going to chat now with Professor Carl Chin. Carl is well known across the region for his deep love of mild and everything else to do with the area. And in my chat with Carl, he explains why he had no choice but to drink mild from when he first walked into a pub in the Midlands and how, as over time, things have changed and why Carl believes that um, the big breweries have a lot to answer for when it comes to the decline of mild. Today, I'm joined by Carl Chin. Carl is an English historian, writer and broadcaster whose working life has been devoted to the study and popularisation of the city of Birmingham. Carl, welcome. Thank you, Simon. Now, the focus of this episode of Pubs, Pints, People is on mild ale. As someone who's been drinking mild since the age of 16, what are the first words which come to mind when you think of mild? Boston beer. I, I had no choice about drinking mild, just like I had no choice being a Villa fan and no choice being a Brummie. You're born that way. I started drinking properly with my great-uncles, my mum's uncles, my great-uncle George and great-uncle Bill. They were from Aston, and the Ansells Brewery was very close to where they grew up. I'd have a drink with them at the King Standing Ex Servicemen's Club, uh, Pipe's, the Forget-Me-Not Club, and sometimes at the Aston Social Club, and... Older working men in those days and middle-aged men and younger men, it was overwhelmingly mild. There was two major breweries, dominating brewery, Birmingham, in the 70s when I started drinking, Ansel's and M&B. M&B was probably better known for its bitter rather than its mild, yep. but Ansel's mild was seen as the, the really a really good mild. It was a nutty taste. It was I still got the taste in my mouth even though it's been gone many years. So I had no choice going in to the clubs. What do you want to drink? Dunno wonk, pints of mild and that was it <laughs> and I love the taste. But why do you think mild is so synonymous with the Midlands in particular? I think it's because it survived longer here in the Midlands than elsewhere. Years ago, oh, I'm going back now to in my early 20s, we went down to Erith in Kent and we went into a pub and asked for a pint of mild and the gaffer was absolutely delighted. And I know they, <laughs> that mild is still popular in parts of Yorkshire and Lancashire as well as Birmingham and the black country. But there's a massive problem, Simon, in that breweries, big breweries, turned against mild. And it, it, it seems to me to have fitted into that change that was happening to pubs in the late 20th century when they took out the bar they took out the dominoes they took out the darts and they took out the mild and then they'd say well you go to him well why is there no mild in there's no call for mild well there was no call for mild because you didn't serve the mild (laughs) and then there was this big focus on lager drinking that it was cool etc so i think the big breweries have a, a, a lot to answer for in the decline of mild drinking so you talked about some of the milds that you drank as a youngster. What, what are your favourite milds today and has the taste changed at all over time? I think there's different tastes with mild. It's not a homogenous drink. I like Holden's mild from the from the black country. That's a, a really old-fashioned mild. I'm also really keen on Rugate Brewery's mild. I'm sure you've heard of it, yes. Simon, yeah. up in Yorkshire. And uh, I get some of the Rugate's mild delivered to me home. It's a four point, I think it's 4.4%, so it's strong for a mild. It's a ruby mild. It's a beautiful drink, but so is Holden's. It's a, a more of a traditional West Midlands dark black mild almost. And uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, a very strong mild in the black country. I think it's over 6% is at uh, the Beacon in Sedgley. Very strong mild. Another good one that's been a, a brewery that's really started to come back to the fore is Davenport's mild in, mm-hmm. in Birmingham. 
There's a, a superb real ale pub in Birmingham as well called the Wellington, and they yeah. serve a number of miles because, unfortunately, Simon, it's very difficult now to get mild in any pub. A few, few working men's clubs or the equivalents of working men's clubs still serve mild on draft, but it's really becoming more and more difficult to get mild on draft. So that's why I'd like to give a, a, a big thank you to the Wellington in Birmingham for, for carrying on the tradition of serving draft mild. The Wellington will be a pub that's known to many listeners of this and camera members because I know it hosts uh, regular camera meetings up on the meeting floor on the, t- on the top floor. It does, and, and Nigel has done such a wonderful job. He first came to Birmingham when he, he took over at the Barton's Arms, that magnificent late Victorian stroke Edwardian drinking emporium in Aston. It's a stunning pub. I don't know if you've been there. Nigel came there, and then he moved on. So, you know, he's really keen on real ales, and he's, he has done a sterling job because for many years, Birmingham was a, a desert with regard to good real ales, and he transformed that. And just uh, thinking beyond mild as we as we wrap up, you know, what are your favourite pubs across the, the Midlands or any breweries in particular that you would particularly recommend? The Black Country has managed to survive as a stronghold of small breweries and small pubs. There's Marpardo's in Netherton, there's the Beacon yeah. that we've already mentioned in Birmingham. Obviously, there's the Wellington. I, I would love to see the White Swan reopened in Bradford Street, it's closed now. I hear there's plans to reopen the Woodman by Curzon Street Railway Station. I'm much more comfortable in older backstreet pubs, although in the city centre we have some tremendous pubs like the uh, Old Contemptibles, the Old Royal, the Joint Stock and others. And slightly further afield, Wolverhampton's got, is it the Great Western, which is close to the station, which is another renowned pub. Yeah, that I haven't been to the Great, Great Western for years, but that's, that's a stunning pub, hidden away, but really popular. Carl, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us on Pubs, Pints, People today. Take care, Simon. Thanks for inviting me. And that enthusiasm, Carl, really sums up the warmth of beer lovers from that part of the world, doesn't he, Simon? Absolutely. As you said, the accent, but just the enthusiasm, you know, his his deep love of, of that region and of the mild style of beer in particular. You know, I can't imagine Carl's drunk much else in his life. He just seems to be dedicated, <laughs> a dedicated disciple of mild. Quite right, too. Uh, Speaking of fabulous mild, I finally got to see inside the Sarah Hughes Brewery, where I began by meeting Ricky Follos, the brewer. He originally saw a job advert and then had a rather unusual interview from the post. I saw the advert for the job and he said, can you come and interview? He said, can you lift that? And I hold him, yeah. And then he found me back like the next week and said, you can have the job if you want to. Fantastic. And I've been here seven years now. It was meant to be. It's a great place. It's, it's like working in the streets, the local history as well. What's the biggest seller? Is it the Ruby Mild? No. It's a surprise it's in the pub. Surprise. So that still goes into 36s. Uh, when we rack the amber, it goes into 18s. And when we rack the ruby, it goes into 18s. So here's your lovely grain hopper and yep. your malts coming in here. Yeah. And you've got your lovely marisotta and you've got your little bit of caramel, did you say? Crystal. Crystal malt, Crystal that's malt, it. Yeah. That's what yeah, you yeah. said. So you get that lovely caramelisation yeah. on that, so yeah. So we'll, we load up the night before a brew. Yep. And then a uh, girl comes up about 10 o'clock at night, lights a boiler for me to light the liquor tank, if you oh, it's over wow, there. Oh, wow, yeah. So it's a proper... So how does she do it's that? It's gas-powered now. OK, fantastic. Back in the day, it would have been coal-powered. Of course. But obviously, it's gas-powered now. When I come in in the morning, it's usually about 90 degrees. <laughs> so I'll bring it down to 72, and that, we're mashing at 72. Perfect. So I've got my little stool, and we've got the old-fashioned mash paddle. Oh, fantastic. Oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So wow. this is still a hatch. 
it just opened the hatch slightly. Yeah. Stuck now because I'm cleaning. But, and then it falls in there and it just stirs like a big bowl of porridge for me. Takes about 20 minutes. So it's a classic using gravity yeah. to help you. We've got two electric pumps, and I think that's just because you have to. Yeah. Now, we'd be here all day dropping that beer if, if not. We've got the two wooden lids, which I'll show you. You put your two wooden lids on, which we just keep here out of the way. So it's proper still old. Put them on there, and then it's left for an hour and a half just to get all the sugars yeah, out. Yeah, so you're drawing all that sugar. Come back up after an hour and a half. Because there's only me, during that hour and a half, I'll fill the cellar up, get the yeast ready. If Kirsty's not done the hops for me the day before, I'll do the hops. We still use leaf hops. Goldings, Bramling Cross and Fuggles. We only use British. So I'll come back up, then it's time to sparge, as you know. Yep. So I'll put the ring in, and then we sparge, try and sparge at 72 as well. So this ring sits in here like it is now. The water comes in through the liquor tank. Sprays down in there. Yeah, so it doesn't spin or nothing, just old-fashioned holes in the ring. And then you've got your underback, and then it goes into the copper. That's absolutely fabulous, that copper. It's 1935. Oh, it's, oh. And it's not moved since. I bet it hasn't. Still the it's same. got that lovely tiled surround and you can see yeah. right deep into that lovely burnished copper. Looks yeah. beautiful. So that takes about two hours to fill up. And then as it starts to boil, take your first reading, put your first hops in. Second reading, just to make sure it's dropping. It drops one point every 20 minutes, our, our stuff does. So then it drops again, and then on your third reading, five minutes after that, last hops, Irish moss, and then you're off the boil five minutes before the air was up, and then that's basically it here. So then you just let it settle in there, and then we drop it down to the next floor. So everything was in situ, left behind, from it just laying there for 30 years yeah, with no brewing. Cobwebs everywhere, I think. Yeah. So we had to have a new liquor tank put in. That's all I'm aware that he had to have done, to be honest. But everything else is, is, is the original. So this uh, is the fermenting room. Wow. Fabulous. So each brew fills two of the tanks. I've got a surprise in there at the minute if you want to have a look. Oh, yes. It smells lovely. It's a, if we've got the fresh yeast, it usually ferments in about three days. But last week I did amber, ruby, sage, sage. I transferred the amber yesterday and it's racked today. So about a week, seven days. It's racked in there. I just put the holes on there, connect it to the two tanks and then put it in the big racking tank there. So I've got a ruby in there at the minute. And then when we rack, it's just the old fashioned holes on the tap. Line me four nines down or whatever and just fill one fill by one. Up. Yeah. Lovely. And a bit of priming liquid. Yeah, yeah. So we put eyes and glass when I transfer it. Yeah. And then that's the process done, it goes off down the cellar. Off it goes to yeah. condition. Yeah. Well, your beer is well known all over the country. Yeah. People come here especially to, yeah. to get some. Yeah. I mean, we did Black Country Day tours. We have Black Country Day around here. Celebrate the heritage, the industrial and everything. And I think I did, in two hours, I did a tour every 10 minutes. And more people wanted to come, but we just couldn't fit them in. So that, that was good. People walked past, but they don't know what was into it. And of course. So we had a lot of regulars coming. It was, it was a nice day, that was. But it's just nice to be part of history. Of course. Yeah, fantastic. You've got to remember where you've come from here. Eh? Well, those tours that he talked about sound absolutely great. And I think you also then had to look round the Beacon Hotel itself, didn't you? Yes. Well, I had been to the Beacon uh, with Phil uh, a while ago, but I had a chance to spend a bit of time there soaking up that fantastic atmosphere. And I also had a chat with Alex, who runs the pub, and started by asking her what she loves most about running the Beacon Hotel. The people, I suppose, number one. 
because um, when the when the pub's empty, it's got a completely different atmosphere. And then as soon as you open the pub and the people come in, it sort of changes and it it becomes something else. And um, yeah, without the people, obviously, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be anything. But it, like, well, we were shut during COVID. It was the it was the company that we missed more than the work itself. Did you do any takeaway or anything during COVID? We did at first, but then they changed the rules, didn't they, briefly? Yeah, and then the that sort of scared us. And then we, we stopped doing it, and then they allowed you to do it again. But we just didn't pick it back up again. But we renovated the pub. It needed a lot of work doing. Um, so we spent the time doing that. Um, it looks fantastic. Yeah, it does. Uh, the bar needed to be um, completely sort of revamped. So we did that, and then the rafters just below the bar, they'd started to rot because like the beer had been soaking in. Um, so we had to have those replaced. So a lot of the structural work, like below the bar in the cellar, that was replaced. So that was great to get that done. Yeah, and we didn't realise just how desperately it needed to be done, and it was really the only opportunity we could have had unless we closed. So, so you made the best of it. We did. Yeah. <laughs> so the room we're sitting in now. Is this a smoke room? Yes, yeah, smoke room. So this is presumably where people used to come and have a... I guess so, yeah. I'm not really sure why it was called that, but we've got smoke room, tap room and snug. I suppose the... Oh, actually, the tap room was named because it used to have um, taps in there, so it was somewhere that you could get beer that wasn't the bar. I'm not sure about the smoke room. I guess it must be to do with smoking. But then when, when like before the smoking ban, everyone could smoke wherever they wanted, yeah. really. So this is kind of oak panelled, oak panelled, is it? Yeah. yeah. And you've got these lovely button-backed, um, sort of gorgeous red, deep red, sort of oxblood colour. Would you call it oxblood yeah, colour? Oxblood. Yeah, these lovely um, sort of Chesterfield banquettes. I think you can yeah. call them. And what's how do people choose where they're going to sit? Why do they come and sit in here? There's different characters for a different room. So the tap room, there's a door that they can shut. So that seems to be like the, the room where you go if you want to be a bit swearing. <laughs> um, not that they get up to anything naughty, but it's sort of like they can shut off from everybody else. Um, the smoke room is, is probably the posher room. And then the snug simile is quite posh in there. Uh, the kids' room, we call it, the veranda. It's where we allow under 18s. So it gets filled up with children and, and families, um, but also people who want to go outside and use the smoking area. You, obviously, you've got loads of regulars. Like I've known them for 20 years, and they've been coming here for 30 or 40. They're, you know, literally part of the furniture. Absolutely. And they notice they're all drinking the sedgely surprise. Mostly, uh, mostly surprise. This time of year, we sell less ruby because it's warm and people want something a bit more refreshing. But then we get a lot of groups coming in over the weekend. Um, from different areas like camera groups or um, they might just be doing coach parties and they'll come in and they'll specifically drink the ruby so it does still still sell really well but this time of year I think the conditions are a lot better because we sell a little bit less of it we're able to hold on to it a little so bit longer and I do always prefer it this yeah. time of year and what's it like working by in that very interesting yeah. little bar with the low low window yeah, no hatches. windows no space do you get a crick in the really? neck from bending down all the time yeah I've had a bad back all my life <laughs> <laughs> oh, 20 years of it um, yeah it gets a bit tight on weekends when there's like, three or four of us trying to squeeze in and serve dancing around people. each other because it, it feels quiet now but this pub gets really really busy so we can get queues and queues of people and when there's well at the most really you can fit three people in there and apart from your beers what else do you sell quite a lot of 
we tend to keep the guest beers quite um, hoppy to sort of balance our sweetness. Yeah. But mostly it's our stuff. It's about 90% what's the price of the pint of your sedgley surprise £3.50 dirt cheek wow yeah. I mean obviously I come from London so that sounds like an <laughs> extraordinary bargain to me yeah. well, even for the area we're sort of we're on the reasonable end of it um, some of our guest beers are probably a little bit more expensive but we have to pay more for them so they would be um, but our house beers are very reasonable the mm-hmm. ruby's only uh, £3.70. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable, Alex. Yeah. And what's your favourite when you, uh, if you're going to have a beer after a, on a odd occasion when you might want to have one after a shift? So yeah, it's got to be the ruby. Wow, I've really really struck by the price of the beers that you spoke about in that interview. So £3.50 or £3.70 for a pint just feels incredible in, in this day and age. And also, the Bathams earlier said that you know mild was served for two pounds sixty a pint. I know it's shocking, isn't it? I just wow! Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We've know what to say. Two pounds sixty. I mean, that really is unbelievably uh, inexpensive. But three fifty and three seventy. You know, I'm I'm in Suffolk, and actually, our local pub still sells most pints for three pounds forty a pint. So for me, it's not surprising. But I guess. It's these big city prices, these your London prices that, of course, us out in the sticks, you know, tend to steer clear of. Well, I'm going to say nothing at this point to that. (laughs) (laughs) Running a pub in London. But Simon, I mean, what would you normally pay for a pint of beer? Well, yeah, drinking in central London, you're looking at five or six pounds for a pint of cask beer. It's really hard to get one for less than five pounds unless you're going into some of the, the the larger chains the difficulty is the economies of scale you you know it's it's a different story um where we're talking about rents and rates and things like that so it really does provide a very very different economic backdrop uh, so it's extremely difficult to compare prices i think across the geography and, and i guess as well it depends what you're drinking i mean there's another pub that i know of right out in the sticks but it sells some very unusual we've talked in the past on the on the show about sours and that sort of thing and obviously their beers are much more expensive than three fifty a, a pint. Um, but you're, you're talking about, as you say, economies of scale and a, a different style of beer altogether. Um, so yeah, I think we're probably just quite lucky with our our local pub. I guess the country's biggest pub in August is probably the Great British Beer Festival. And when I was at the GBBF um, this summer, I caught up with Dean Barrett. Now Dean's recently been elected to Camera's national executive. I'm sure that many people will know that Camera has a national executive but if you then dig a bit deeper and say what's its role what do you have to do to get onto it maybe we'd all be a bit more hazy about what exactly it is and and what it does so i started by asking dean what his reasons were for standing i wanted to do this and um I'm really interested in the strength of camera as a brand. I mean, and I have been appointed commercial director, so I hope I'm in the right place to do something about that. I think we are a strong brand amongst members, but we need to be a stronger brand with the public when there are so many other things that compete for their, their time, their money and their leisure time, actually. When did you first join Camera, Dean? I joined Camera at my local festival, which was the, the North Hertfordshire Festival. It was in Letchworth Garden City, which is my hometown. Somewhere in the 1980s, I moved there in 1986, and it was fairly soon because it was five minutes from my home. Um, and then I worked abroad for a number of years, but had a, a desire to get more involved. I kept seeing the 
branch newsletter come through and I think I really need to do something about that oh I can't make that day so when I got early retirement from my career it was on my bucket list of things to do and what drew you to camera in the first place was it just that, that you loved beer as simple as that well I was converted to real ale at university actually I had never heard of it and even then it wasn't called real ale so that would have been in 1977 I'd been drinking essentially lager and lime until then and so I discovered Castle Eden Ale was my first favourite ale uh, in Loughborough University which had a fantastic students bar and um, only when I got to Letchworth and saw the Camera Beer Festival did I think ah well that's what this is all about and that's when I got interested so I've been a real ale drinker for a long time as a real enthusiast I suppose since the late 1980s what made you decide to stand for the national executive because it, you've come up very much through the grassroots of the of the branch well grassroots of camera but I've been a functional director of my company for uh, many years since uh, when was it 1981 and I've always been in commercial functions sales marketing and uh, and branding and my last career job was actually branding the Opel network that's a car dealership network in Germany sister of Vauxhall um, so I really got much strength of feeling about how important a brand was to an organisation now I didn't know I would be immediately given the responsibility for that I'm very glad that I have but I still thought that my organisational skills and it's what I pitched on would be a benefit to bring the, the grassroots and the centre and by the centre, I mean the central staff and the national executive together. Close the gap, so to speak. I think a lot of people, if they've even heard of the national executive of camera, and of course there will be members who might have heard about it but are not really sure what it is or that it could in any way be relevant to them. But a, a lot of people might think, well, surely you have to be running the Great British Beer Festival for at least 10 years before you can even think about standing or have something to do with head office it, it's not like that at all though is it no because you need breadth I mean Catherine Tonry who runs the Great British Beer Festival that's her thing she does a fantastic job but we have a number of committees just like a number of just like organisations have a number of departments we have divisions and we have committees of volunteers and it's the bringing of those together that's important so you don't need all beer enthusiasts or beer festival organisers you need people with commercial skills people skills marketing skills and uh, you know I thought there was an angle that I could a gap that I could fill shall I put it that way and you also take on a, a regional role as well don't you you sort of look after uh, the, the, the area that, that you're a part of yeah so uh, each uh, county has uh, in theory uh, a, a county organiser an area organiser they call it at the moment I mean and they so for instance Hertfordshire has four branches and they are essentially a division of the, of the territory to make sure that you can cover the ground of the pubs and the judging of the, of the, uh, of the beer and who, which pubs go in the, in the good beer guide. So it's the coordination of those branches together and then move that up to region, which is important. So it goes branch, county, region. And those regional directors are also a very important part of our, of our leadership as well. And for people who are in their grassroots branch, perhaps they go along to their local beer festival, they, maybe they help out, perhaps they make a few recommendations for, for the local pub of the year or, or whatever they do. 
they may think, well, I don't even bother to vote in the national executive. Why should they? I think that the people who are active in the branches do vote. Um, I think most of the people who are branch members don't know anything about it. That was my experience just by chance going to a beer festival, St Neitz as it happens, and saying to people with a little flyer in my hand, do you do realise that the four of us, uh, sorry, six of us it was, candidates for national executive, are all members like you, and you can vote for us, four of us will be elected. But they were really interested that that's how the way, that's the way the camera is indeed run. Because we put up at our festivals, local festivals particularly, camera is a volunteer-led organisation. They don't realise it's literally led by volunteers. They think, oh yeah, I can see there are volunteers running this festival. They do not understand that it's actually the company, uh, directors, who take responsibility for the health and wealth of the company. And it is a company. You know, we are a not-for-profit company, but we are a company. And uh, therefore, we've got directorial responsibility. You know, Camera was formed in 1971 by relatively young people. Those relatively young people have all got old. And we don't have the the depth of younger people coming in. It's not just about age. But we do have to realise that society has to change the way people are. And it's not not COVID. That's, That's been a big change. But it is that people have a lot of calls on their time. Probably don't see that it's something they can uh, do justice to, if I can put it that way. You've got this commercial role. Does that mean you'll be bringing more sponsorship into camera, um, working with with different partners? Well, it may do. I mean, that isn't my initial focus. I don't like to come in like a new broom and just sweep clean because there's a lot of great things about the camera brand. But I do feel that we've got to reconnect with the history and the future because we came through two very big things which were opposite effects. We came through COVID where there were no beer festivals and you had to do everything virtually. Then we had our 50th anniversary which was great and now it's kind of, now what? You know, And that's what I feel, that there's, there's a bit of a sigh of relief which should be a sigh of inspiration if I could call it that. And that's what I'd like to kind of us up to do, be inspired about the brand. Cameras, well, part of Cameras brand is it's about pubs, pints and people. Which one of those is the most critical for you? The people, funny enough, because it embraces them all. And I like the fact that you can explain those three words many ways. I mean, our, our mission is now quite long. You know, we, we espouse not only real ale, but real cider, real perry, we want to look after pubs, we want to look after breweries, and we will look after drinkers. Try putting that in a phrase. I'd actually choose pubs, pints, people. So Dean mentioned there that he got first involved with camera at his local beer festival at Letchworth. Am I right in thinking that Letchworth was originally built without pubs? That's right. Letchworth Garden City was the idea of a social reformer called Ebenezer Howard, and he was teetotal. So there was a very early pub there when it was built, and it was called the Skittles Inn, but it wasn't allowed to serve alcohol. It served apple juice, tea, hot chocolate, that sort of thing. Now, Dean told me that when he was moving to the area, it never occurred to him to check whether the town had any pubs, which it didn't. But things have changed since then, and, and there are a number of pubs there now. But, I mean, who buys a house without looking at 
where the nearest pub is and is it walking distance? (laughs) I certainly wouldn't, my goodness, that's so important. (laughs) For any of our listeners, if Dean's voice sounded familiar, it's because he was an early contributor to Pubs, Pints, People during lockdown and someone who I'm sure we'll be hearing from again before too long. It was a really good point that you made about the amount of volunteer effort that goes into everything that Camera does. We are very much a volunteer-led organisation. Perhaps the most visible examples of that is those who organise and work at our beer festivals up and down the country. But you also have people who serve on different roles on branch committees, uh, to people who take on the more responsibilities such as regional directors or even being a member of the national executive. Of course, this podcast, everything that we do from the script writing through the recording and the production and the social media is driven entirely by volunteers. And it's really thanks to all of those behind the scenes who makes something like this happen. Now, we were hearing earlier about Alison's trip to the Midlands and uh, it sounds like you had a fantastic time visiting all those pubs. But talking of visiting pubs, in every episode of Pubs, Pints, People, we like to bring you a feature that we've been calling We're Only Here for the Beer, where we look through our editions or our apps of Camera's Good Beer Guide and pick out a favourite gem or perhaps somewhere we'd like to visit. Well, when the 51st edition of the Good Beer Guide came out at the beginning of October... As ever, there were those who were disappointed that their particular favourite hadn't got in. Now, social media can be a harsh judge and one branch that came in for a bashing was Tyneside in Northumberland. Branch chair Paul Hillhouse put a comprehensive and considered statement on their Facebook page about how the competition is judged. It really is worth having a read. Yeah, controversy seems to have been following camera around a bit this year. And we're here later in this episode when Claire chats to Christine Crine, the head judge for the Champion Beer of Britain competition. But pubs are still having a tough time of it, and government statistics suggested recently that two pubs are closing a day in England and Wales. 230 vanished in the three months to June. Perhaps we should rename this feature Still Here for the Beer. (laughs) So uh, I'm still here for the beer this month, uh, and I was absolutely delighted to visit the Nags Head in Reading on, on Friday. Uh, never been before. Um, the Nags Head is a multi-camera award-winning pub, about 15 minutes walk from Reading Station, just as you're getting into the more residential area. But I walked in on a Friday night and the pub was absolutely rammed. Just a really nice atmosphere. And then on the bar you had, um, there was about 10 taps um, pouring Cascale, so you had around 7 or 8 beers from Brew York. They were a bit of a tap takeover. Uh, there was one real cider on, on hand pool. But I'd really attended for Elusive Brewing's Collabageddon, where Elusive had got together with 11 other breweries. They'd all partnered together and they'd brewed uh, 12 different beers. So uh, I was sitting there across the evening drinking my thirds and my halves and working my way through most of the beers that were available. So a uh, really enjoyable evening in an absolutely cracking pub uh, not far from Reading Town Centre. That sounds fantastic. I, I think I'll have to add that to the list of pubs that I want to visit. Well, Simon, earlier you mentioned about the Tyneside and Northumberland branch and th- their comments on how they choose their pubs for the Good Beer Guide. I'm actually picking one of their GBG selections, in fact, as I was on holiday in that region earlier this year and I picked up a copy of their branch magazine, Canny Bevy, which we've mentioned on the podcast before. It's certainly worth a read. And the pub and, in fact, the brewery that's on my wish list of places to visit is the Twice Brewed Inn. It's near Hadrian's Wall in a village called Once Brewed. It's also actually very close to the area known as Sycamore Gap, and that was where the famous tree was felled recently. So while in Northumberland, although I didn't get to visit that pub, I did buy a bottle of Twice Brewed's Sycamore Gap Pale Ale. It's 
it's got a picture of the tree on the on the label. I'm not sure what they're going to do going forward. Hopefully it won't just be a picture of a stump or something. But but that's a, a, only as close as I've got so far. So I'll, I'll have to get back up to that part of the world at some point and visit the pub. And particularly they hold stargazing nights, which, which sounds absolutely brilliant. So that's definitely on my wish list. Oh, my goodness, a great pint and, and a sky full of stars. I can't imagine anything nicer, Claire. Um, what a great choice. I'm going to stick with my Midlands pubs. Uh, no surprise for this particular episode. And a big shout to the Great Western pub, um, an ex-champion uh, beer, uh, champion pub, rather. Um, that's in Sun Street in Wolverhampton, very close to the, the station. Uh, as you heard, um, David and I enjoying a pint of Holden's in there. But overall, I want to give a big shout to The Vine, uh, a.k.a. The Bull and Bladder in Briley Hill. Now, that's the brewery tap for the Bathams Brewery. Um, It's called The Bull and Bladder locally because it's built on what used to be a slaughterhouse. And it's still adorned with wonderful heads of cattle and various sort of nods to its past all around the pub. It's a beautiful pub inside. Uh, We mentioned beer. It's tip-top quality, as you would imagine. And David and I also enjoyed a beautiful plate of faggots and cheese chips with gravy which was sensational and remarkable value so definitely highly recommended the vine in briley hill great choice there now we mentioned earlier that we'd be talking about the champion beer of britain sea bob as it's known in camera circles and the first round of judging or, or voting anyway is from camera members themselves now there are Vast numbers of beers on the website. Members can vote for up to five in each category. There's 14 categories. And when I spoke to Christine Tryon, who heads up the judging panel for CBOB, I asked her whether having such a wide choice at this early stage of the competition can actually be a bit daunting for some. I think people get put off a bit because there are so many choices, but you can uh, just vote for the beers in your region and you don't have to vote for every single beer. You've got a choice of five beers in each of the, the 12, no, 14 categories, uh, but you can you can just vote for one in each of them if you want. But it's a great way of supporting your local breweries um, because at a, when from national level they, through the tasting panels, it's very difficult for them to try all of the beers that that possibly could be put forward. And that's really why we need the members' help. How do the beers that are up for voting, how do they get selected to be in that list in the first place? I I had a quick search for a brewery near me and I, I couldn't find anything from them on there, which really surprised me. What it comes down to is the brewery liaison officers will list the beers on Camera Central System. It used to be called the Brewery Information System. It's now got a name called Pilgrim. And uh, what they do is they have they determine whether it's cask, whether it's actually a proper real ale, if it's available um, a reasonable months of the year, depending on the on the spear style, it has to be available all year round or uh, if it's a seasonal for certain months. And there are certain other categories where things like barley wines, which are only available for a couple of months a year where any any of those can go through. So that's the first thing. And then that's listed onto the onto the uh, CBOB system, the Champion Beer Britain system, and uh, and people can vote from that. So it's very much a yes or no at that stage. One of the things that's always influenced my voting in this, and I I don't know whether it's right or wrong, or whether I should even admit this to the chief judge, <laughs> but I sometimes think, oh, I had a lovely pint of whatever it was when I was on holiday two years ago. I'd love to vote for that. It was fantastic. But because I haven't been on holiday to that particular part of the country since then, 
if the beer's on the list, I'm guessing it's still as good as it was when I drank it two years ago. But is that really what I should be doing? Or should I only be voting for beers that I've had, say, in the last 12 months? Oh, that's a difficult one. Uh, beers do change, of course. Uh, the brewers may not be able to get the ingredient. I mean, one time we had a lot of problems with uh, getting hops from the United States. And in fact, actually, it's not great at the moment. Um, so they had to alter their recipes. So often the beer you're tasting today may not be have the same recipe that the beer had two years ago. So really, you should be uh, voting for beers that you've had really in the last 12 or 18 months, I'd say, because there's a good chance the brewers altered the recipe. And brewers do like to experiment, which gives us a bit of a nightmare in terms of things like altering uh, alcohol contents, because a lot of our style categories are based on alcohol content. So if they move the alcohol content, it can sometimes move from one category to another, which gives us another problem. Let's talk about this year's winners, because there was quite a lot of publicity, particularly, uh, in fact, sadly, really, because the, the overall winner did get a lot of publicity, but it was the runner-up that perhaps got more publicity, Abbott Ale, of course. And there was a lot of people saying, oh, Abbott Ale shouldn't have even been there. It shouldn't have even won. What what do you say when you hear things like that? Well, if we're going to take that approach, then we would be, wouldn't be the champion beer of Britain. It'd be the champion beer of smaller breweries. And actually, that's more what the Society of Independent Brewers Association do, and although they have bigger brewers there too. What we're trying to do is to find the best beer regardless of who brews it. And let's be honest, some of the big brewers, I mean, a lot of the big brewers have very well qualified and very, very good brewers. Um, so I think it would be unfair to stop the bigger brewers coming in. I mean, and where do you draw the line? I mean, you've got someone like Fuller's, who's now was independent, but now is owned by Asahi, of course. Um, would you stop them coming in? I mean, they and Timothy Taylor's have been the two biggest winners uh, of the Champion Beer Britain in its history. And although you don't see Fuller's draft beer getting through to the finals very often these days, their bottled beer, particularly the 1845, regularly comes up to the finals. And in fact, it made the final beer judging of the bottled beer category this year. So if they produce a good beer, then it should be judged on, on the production, not on who brews it. And of course, to reach the final judging, it would have been on our screens, on our phones to vote for in this round, the members round in the early stages, people would have voted or it wouldn't have been there in the first place, I guess. Yes, I mean, but there's two ways of coming into the Champion Beer of Britain. One is the members votes and the other one is through the tasting panels. And what they do, and I chair the London one, for example, is we we taste the beers that brewed just in London all the way year through the year, and we give an overall score as to whether or not we think it's worthy of going forward to the Champion Beer of Britain. And that enables us to, to have a look at a whole range of different beers and keep a record of how those beers have been doing over the year. And they can go up and down. And we've had beers in that we're looking as if we're put forward this year that certainly wasn't in last year and vice versa. So we try and be as objective as we can. And really, that's what we're trying to do with the Champion of Britain. It's not perfect. No beer judging is. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to what the beer tastes on the, on that day. And that's a, that's a bit of potluck sometimes. And it, it goes through a number of judging panels, doesn't it? You have the category judging and then the overall judging. And that all takes place at the Great British Beer Festival. 
Yeah, what happens is that to start with, there are nine regions and each region judges the, 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 uh, the 14 different categories. So that's 12 draft and two bottled. And those are the beer, all they're the they're breweries and the beers that have been put forward by the members voting and the tasting panels. There's usually about between six and nine beers that are judged in each of those categories in each region. So that's a lot. Um, and then the winners of that then get for, put forward either to the winter uh, champion beer Britain, where the winter uh, overall winner is, is, is awarded or it goes through to the summer. And then the winners of the uh, the winter one get put in with the summer ones, and then we find our overall winner. Because Ellen Ellen Porter uh, won the uh, the winter hours one, um, and that's how that got through. It's all blind judging at, at the um, at, at the you know the, the the judges don't know what the, they might have a strong idea, I guess, if they know the beer, but they they technically don't know what they're drinking. No, no, you don't. And we deliberately try and keep people away from, for example, the programmes and the judges are not allowed around the uh, where the beer is kept. Um, we do. We are quite secretive and quite rightly so, because it can influence a, 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 a perception. I'll give you a really good example. A few years ago, I was chairing the final of the Champion Beer Britain and we really couldn't make up our minds between two beers. They were um, they were very, very good. And it was a whisper in it. And afterwards, um, it actually was Crouchvale Vale, a gold that won. And they'd actually won the previous year too. Very unusual, but they, they won two years running. The runner up was Harvest Sussex Best Bitter. And at least one judge came up to me and said, if I'd realised this beer, the, the Crouchvale, was the same beer that won last year, I would have voted for the Harvest Sussex Best. Now, that's influencing the judging because people knew what the what mm. the beer was like. Um, whether that was a big good thing or a bad thing, you can argue, but it shows you it can influence your judging. So we don't know. So you don't know the beers. I remember um, Crouchvale winning two years on the trot and uh, Brewer's Gold is a lovely beer. It is. It's a <laughs> well-deserved winner, in my opinion. One thing that didn't quite sit comfortably with me this year, and, and perhaps you're the wrong person to ask about this because obviously it was nothing to do with you from this point of view, but Abbott was a major sponsor of the festival. It was plastered everywhere. They'd obviously put a lot of money to promote that particular brand at that particular festival. Is there perhaps a, a way of looking at the commercial aspect? I can understand people being upset that one of the festival's big four sponsors also took a, a big prize. It was pure pure chance, absolute pure chance, because the, the, it was the members in, in the East Anglia region that put the abbot forward. It then had to be judged at that, that level. And then it goes through two sets of judging at the Grape Beer Festival. There is an initial round where we judge each of the beer styles. So there are 14 panels effectively going place. This one was in the premium bitters category, and it was judged against eight other premium bitters and the judges on that table. And there are a mix of people. We we make sure we have people from different backgrounds. So there's a couple of, of camera trained judges because they have to, at the national level, we like them to go through a, a training program and pass. There is actually a written test. And then we usually have a couple of brewers, um, at least one licensee and a couple, um, perhaps one or two other trade people. So it's a mix of people. It's not just a camera member saying this is the best beer. It's a real mix of people that actually came up and said Abbott was the best on that table. 
Um, if you'd done it another day, you might have ended up with a different decision and a different panel may have done, made a different decision. But on that day, that was their decision. It is quite daunting looking at all those beers to choose from. I mean, I, I must admit, I just sat there and, and my head was swimming by, by the end of it. I, I couldn't, you know, I had to go onto the website, make a short list, leave it, come back and look the, the next day. Do, do you guys find the same thing when you look at all those, uh, those beers to choose from? Yeah, there's a lot there, isn't there? Even for me, you know, and obviously I do it for a living. But I, I think that probably the best way to do it is to pick a couple of beers that you really want to vote for or a couple of styles that you're very passionate about and have been drinking around and just go for those, go for those uh, sections. If you find the whole thing a bit much, just pick pick those out and focus on those. Yeah, I, I would certainly echo those thoughts and in particular the bit about choosing a style that you like. You know, if you, if you go into the style and you see some of the beers that are listed, then I think it'll bring back some memories and some you know fond memories of that and you'll think that that beer there that's that's worth my vote today um but certainly it's an incredibly comprehensive uh, process and uh, you know there are pros and cons to that but uh, hopefully it means that the, the the true champion beer of britain will never slip through the net and yeah, it's right, isn't it? What, what Christine was saying about not, uh, you know, including some of the big breweries in there as well, isn't it, Claire? That's right. I mean, we we obviously talked about the um, the controversy um, over Abbot Ale and the fact that they were a sponsor of of the festival, as, as you heard in the interview there. But as Christine said, you can't make it just a competition for breweries of a certain size because that's not the champion beer of Britain. It's more, as, as Christine herself said. A, a small small brewery competition uh, yeah i mean there's the wonderful seba competition that already runs i've been part of judging for that in the past and that's something that's a, a very well organized and comprehensive competition uh, but simply focused on small breweries so there's there's some really good competitions out there that do exactly that so hopefully christine's gone some of the way to explain why you can't just say oh they're too big to be in champion beer of, of britain as far as she's concerned nobody's too big to be in the competition or indeed too small ellen who won a fantastic brewery uh, but they really are rather small so it's great to see everybody getting involved and the other thing of course we've mentioned you know just pick the styles you like you could also just pick from your region you don't have to go all around the country particularly if you haven't tried the beers for a while so when it comes to voting next autumn because obviously voting has closed for for next year's beer but around about sort of october time next year Maybe just look for beers from your part of the world and pick ones that you really know and add them to the shortlist. That that sounds a great way of doing it. Fantastic. So I think it's time, folks, for Last Orders. So this is where we talk about the favourite beer or cider that we've been drinking this week or this month. So a slightly different format from Simon and myself uh, this time uh, because I we've done something different, haven't we, Simon? We certainly have. You were uh, determined to introduce me to a, a range of miles, so miles that we could get in, in bottle and can format. And uh, you were kind enough to come and visit me in, in the city close to where I work. And we sat down, uh, we opened four different miles and we enjoyed a very pleasant hour or two sipping and tasting and, and making some notes. So, Simon, here we go. We've got four miles in front of us. So, should we describe what we have here? So, the first one is the one you got. So, tell us a bit about this. So, this is Gunpowder Premium Mild from Coach House 
Brewery up in Warrington, Cheshire. I've got uh, a Reader Mile, so Claire will be proud of me because this is from Norfolk, uh, and this is from the Humpty Dumpty Brewery in Reedham in Norfolk. So this one comes in at a slightly stronger uh, 4.5%. We're going to start with the gunpowder mile. This is an unknown quantity to me. What about you? Have you tried this before? not tried it before, no. Fantastic. So let's see what we have. Um, we've got some very nice little tasting glasses. We're only taking little tasting nips, aren't we, Simon? Because we're we very are. professional. We're, we're responsible. <laughs> but this one is only 3.8%, so it's a good sort of standard mile. So colour-wise, it's exactly what I'd expect to see. It's got a lovely creamy, sort of tan-coloured creamy head on top. How would you describe that colour, Simon? It, it's not quite. It's not quite black. It's not quite as dark as a as a stouter reporter, but it's not far off, is yeah, it? Yeah, sort of chocolatey, isn't it? Yeah. Chocolate brown. Is that is that a fair yeah, I colour? Yeah, that's a fair colour. And the nose. I don't even need to put it up to my nose because I'm all, already getting that lovely kind of character that I'm looking for with a mild, which is first and foremost that dark fruit aroma, sort of plum. Uh, and then we get that lovely maltier than a malty thing that won the multi competition malt loaf <laughs> smell. Does that, does that malt fit? loaf is exactly <laughs> what you can smell. Mm. And yes, it's got that lovely creamy smoothness. Again, it's really gentle across the palate. It's got a little bit of carbonation. Yep. Very pleasant. And just so soft and easy to drink and really all about the malt which is what we like as you said all about the malt but very creamy that's the word that stood out as soon as you said it that's what i recognize from mm. tasting that on my palate and i as someone who doesn't drink miles on a regular basis i wouldn't necessarily have expected it to be as creamy as it is mm. So we've got the Reedham Mild in our glass. It's definitely a lighter shade, I think. It's got a little sort of different colour going it's, on. It's a much lighter shade of brown. It almost matches the bottle that it's coming. Yeah, that sort of uh, brown bottle colour. On the nose, nowhere near as aromatic as the first, as the gunpowder. It's got a sort of, much more of a stouty smell, actually. I'm getting a sort of yeah. crackery kind of malt uh, aroma going on. Oh, yeah, OK. It's got a bit more of a bitter character. It's also got a bit more of that stouty but backbone. For me, verging slightly on this slightly sour taste to mm -hmm. it, for, for, for me. It's not as sweet as that gunpowder no. mild that we tried, and I think we're seeing the contrast. Although I do enjoy that kind of slightly tangy, kind of crackery quality, and it's still definitely soft on the palate, although it has got a little bit more oomph. It's got a bit more of a stouty kind of spine, I would say, to it. Maybe a slightly different recipe coming through there. Uh, and giving us that different character. So now we have a uh, certified champion in front of us, Simon. The uh, champion beer of Britain, 2011. And I'm waving a flag for Essex here <laughs> because um, I, I, my pub is on the border of Essex. Yep. We're in London, but on the borders of Essex. And this is from the wonderful Mighty Oak Brewery in Malden, uh, brewing there since 1996. And this is a thoroughly proper 3.7 ABV for a dark mild. And it is, of course, the Oscar Wilde mild. So to look at it's got a slightly pinkish hue i think so it is our chocolate brown with a slightly pinkish yep. hue and a nice little cheeky caramel colored head what are you getting on the nose son mm, delicious i'll let you, you try the nose <laughs> i get caramel i really yes, do caramel. i get caramel you know that dulce de leche spread Yes. On malt loaf. That. That's what I'm getting. Dulce de leche on, on, on malt loaf. And with the others, it's the malt that shines through, isn't it? The malt is a backbone to a mm, good mild. Mm, mm. Mm. Oh, gosh. 
Yum. Again, very creamy mm. for me. Lovely, smooth, creamy body. So we've got Maris Otter malt in here, that, that venerable uh, <laughs> brewing uh, malt, malted barley. We've got pale crystal malt and we've got some black malts. We also know there's a little bit of wheat, uh, probably helping a bit with the head and it's hopped with the classic British Challenger. So we've got that sort of gentle hopping. It's, you know, as we know with this style, it's not really yeah. about the hops, is it? It's just the hops there to sort of uh, play their background role. And my goodness, this is tasty, isn't it? I mean... It is very tasty. <laughs> could, very, very tasty. I have to say, I could drink quite a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> Which at 3.7 is, is probably not not the worst, is it? Now, excellent job, Mighty Oak Brewery, the Oscar Wilde. Last but not least of our little tasting lineup, we have the amazing Boxcar. And this is not the regular mild, this is the double dark mild. Have you looked at the alcohol by volume on this one? I believe so, it's 6.5%. Let's have a double check. Yeah, 6.3, 6.3. not 6.5. So this one hereby hangs a tail. Uh, this is the wonderful Sam Dickinson, uh, the brewer who fell in love with Mild when he visited a, a beer festival with a friend and discovered just how incredibly drinkable and soft and delicious Mild was. And among all the other craft brewing that he does, all, all the wonderful hoppy IPAs and, and pale ales, he decided he wanted to start brewing a Mild. And his dark Mild comes in at 3.6, was a massive hit. And this was kind of an extension of that sort of, I think he described it as an amped up version. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly what it says on the back of the can. <laughs> so interesting to see a, a, a mild um, sold in a can. And again, yeah. for a brewery based in London, London's history of porters and stouts and yeah. dark beers. Yeah. It, you know, it's a modern twist. It, it certainly is. Unfortunately, he was based, uh, 2016 he started brewing, he was based in Bethnal Green E2. But he, in February 23, landlord issues meant that he closed the site. So he's now cuckoo brewing, but I'm very much hoping that he's able to continue brewing this little beauty. Here it is dark chocolate colour, uh, again with that lovely sort of tan caramel coloured head and already we can smell the incredible intensity of the aroma of it. smell the, the alcohol on this <laughs> just before you even put it to your lips. I get this incredible caramel, uh, sort of butterscotchy, malty, again that malt loaf with butter kind of aroma going on here. Mm. Big rich soft Very warming. Mm. But that dark, plummy fruit really comes through. I know there's a lot of people who are big fans of the um, Titanic plum porter. Have you tried that one? Oh, yes. Mm. yes. Uh, that's, well, this has almost got that. I know there's no plums it's in like it. It's like that, but, yeah. but a little bit more subtle, I think. Mm. Oh, definitely, um, yeah. A very suitable beer as we come into the Christmas season. Mm. It's really complex, that one, isn't it? Very, very Moorish and really delicious. That's probably the sipper uh, of all of these miles that we've tried, and I guess that's no surprise given uh, what it is, but wow, that is a clever beer. Again, looking forward to Christmas, and some people will drink a nice strong beer with their Christmas cake or mm. some cheese. You can imagine um, this going quite well with either of those. Absolutely, I can tell you this is fantastic with a nice sharp cheddar really good and as you say it works well and stands up to sweeter desserts particularly on the on that sort of dried fruity yeah. style because it's got that character hasn't it but yeah it's quite a thing and i really hope sam you keep brewing this beauty because it's one of our absolute favorites there is a triple dark mild as well that is pretty strong uh, i can't remember the abv of it but it's but it's pretty it's pretty big but this for me is absolutely gorgeous we've had the dark mild on on cask a couple of times and it's wonderful wow. too i'm going to stick to the uh, christmas theme for a second mm -hmm. and see 
So, you know, some people, when they make their Christmas cake at home and they feed their cake with alcohol over the couple of months leading up to Christmas, it'd be interesting to feed a Christmas cake with this. Oh, yeah, feed your cake and, and then drink, drink the rest of it. And drink the rest of it. <laughs> It sounds like you two had a great time trying all those milds. Um, Alison, if you're on your, ever on your travels up to Suffolk, do bring a case of milds with you this direction as well. <laughs> Simon, what was your favourite of, of those milds? Well, I have to say Alison's done a great job in opening my eyes to, to um, mild and what it's all about. So it, it was a close run thing in terms of favourites, but um, the Oscar Wilde Mild from Mighty Oak in Essex. Uh, oh, came that's a, a good close... one, yes. Yeah, came a close second. That'll be a drink that's known to quite a few of our listeners. But uh, the winner that just shaded it was uh, from Boxcar, and it was their Double Dark Mild, which was Sublime. Oh, I've not tried that one. I mean, Oscar Wilde Mild has been a, a former Seabob winner, I think, uh, Supreme Champion, as I recall, some it, it some has, years ago. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll have to look out for that one. Well, I'm I'm going in completely the other direction. I'm going to pick a, a pale ale. Uh, this is one that's brewed relatively locally to me, actually, and it's from a craft uh, brewery called um, Jack Rabbit. Now they're fairly small. They only started in 2019, and they they started a couple of friends set up the brewery in an old piggery, I believe, um, because they loved pale ale, and they've been brewing cask pale ale and a number of other um, pails since then and I had their their current pale ale at a local pub on Friday night and the, the, the fact how they've grown and they've come through Covid and done a really good job, you do find their beers in some of the um, beer festivals now um, but yeah and they've got a, a wide selection, you can get it in, in cans and, and really nice to see, um, I had their New England pale ale and it's, it's really nice to see a small brewery Growing, expanding, doing well. They're called Jack Rabbit. Um, they were originally based in Manningtree. I think they've moved into slightly bigger premises now, but I had a, a lovely pint of, of their beer and I shall look forward to trying more of it. So, yeah, so that's my choice. I'm afraid, you know, no miles, letting the side down, picking a pale ale, but um, we're here for all tastes and, and that's just about it from us. We'll see you in our next episode, but for now, cheers! 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 Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer 52 by going to www 
beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52. And covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.